0: It is so good to be home. Uh, Two days before the Houghton College graduation on May the 10th, I got a phone call that my father was ill, and as it turned out, he needed emergency bypass surgery. So I got home from the graduation ceremony on Saturday and I took off my robe, fancy robe, and I got in the car and I drove to Kansas City. And I stayed there for two weeks and um, was glad to be able to be there for the surgery and uh, in the immediate recovery period and then come home via a conference in Indiana. Um, You have been praying for my father, whether you know it or not. Joe Coulson is listed in the prayer concern list. That's my dad. Um, And and I'm glad to report that he's doing well. So I want to thank you for the support that you've given our family. Um, My family has connections that go very deep in this congregation, and so my parents were quite blessed to know that this family was praying for us. Thank you for that. Um, Between the trip to Kansas City and the conference in Indiana, and then immediately following up on that with a trip to Israel with students from Houghton College, I have been gone since, I haven't been in church with you all since May 5th. So I'm very, very glad to be back. And I also want to take a moment just to thank you for caring for my family (laughs) in my absence. You have um, brought meals, invited my kids over to play, supported my husband, given him a chance to run and ride his bikes and get out of the house, those kinds of things mean a lot. This is a good community to belong to when things get difficult. You have been the grace of God to us, and home is a very good place. I left town the day before Mother's Day, Uh, but in my absence, Joshua and the kids prepared a wonderful gift for me. It's a tradition on my side of the family to give red geraniums on Mother's Day. It goes back at least three generations, and I inherited a love of their cheerful red color and their spicy smell from my mother and grandmother. So while I was gone, the kids filled our window boxes with red geraniums. And they are now bringing their cheer to our upper story windows on three sides of the house, and they just make me happy. One of these windows is shaded by a large tree, and the plants in those two boxes don't bloom quite as profusely as the others. But their green shadows have provided cover for the tiny nest of a slate-colored junco. I brought a picture of that nest. Now, if you were looking at that with your own eyes, it's about that big around the whole nest. It's tiny. I love this picture in part because I'm in my 40s now and I am of the generation that knew Sesame Street in its first incarnation. And this picture reminds me of the scenes where Bert and Ernie would go and visit the twiddlebugs who lived in their window box. (laughs) But um, the one day it was just dirt and geraniums and the next day there was a little well dug and it was lined with grass and the next day there was an egg and the next day a second egg and so on and so forth and now there are four eggs and each of them is about the size of a peanut m&m so these are tiny critters and now, the gray, soft mama is sitting there. And I checked on her this morning. Now, in my mind, her name is Phillida. It's a good British name. Maybe you've never heard it before, Phillida. But I tell you, she is a fierce little bundle of mama love. I found this out because the other day I needed to refill the water reservoirs in the window boxes, and I needed to deadhead the plants for the next round of blooms. I could see through the closed window that the nest was empty, so I thought, now's a good time, I won't be disturbing Phyllida. Uh, so I opened the window and I reached out to pluck some dead leaves, and suddenly, Philida flew at me in a flurry of chattering feathers. She had been hiding in the dirt nearby, and she was warning me off. She flew back and forth several times between the window box and the tree, chattering at me and clearly in distress. You know, if Philida would only take the time to get to know me a little bit better, she would know she has nothing to fear from me. I mean, after all, I am a mother like her, and I know the work that is involved in brooding— I would never interfere with her nursery. I only wanted to water my flowers. So I closed the window and I moved on to the next one. And Philida continues to eye me with suspicion every time I pull back the curtain to look at her. But she is safe from me, even if she doesn't quite believe it. That one window box will just have to look a little scraggly this summer. I'm okay with that. I think that coming back home after six weeks away... I feel a little bit like Phillida feels about her nest. All I want is to sit still in the shade and keep my nest warm. Home is good. And then I read today's gospel passage. If you'd like to turn there, I'll give you a moment now. It's Luke 9, beginning in verse 51. Luke 9, verse 51 and following. That feeling of goodness that I have about being home that I felt so keenly after six, months, six weeks away, it felt like six months, six weeks away, that has always been my main takeaway from Jesus' image of the fox's den and the bird's nest Home is a good thing which the Son of Man gave up for our sake, and which we might be called to give up too if we decide to follow Jesus. But I'll be honest, I never quite understood why Jesus seems so unreasonable in his response to these other two would-be disciples. Burying your father is an honorable task after all. And letting your family know where you're going, as my mother drilled into my teenage brain, is the responsible thing to do. Isn't Jesus being a little harsh? Maybe he was feeling grumpy after being rejected by the Samaritan village and he took it out on these poor disciples. Well, after I read the gospel text this week and didn't really get a whole lot out of it, (laughs) I moved on with my mild confusion in my hand to the book of Galatians, to this familiar text about the fruit of the Spirit. I didn't put these two texts together. The church calendar did that. They don't seem to have any connection in my mind. Galatians and the fruit of the Spirit seems to have no connection whatsoever to the fox's den and the bird's nest. And then Philida attacked me. The image of a homeless Jesus is one that we find very meaningful because it signifies all that he gave up to save us. The comforts of a secure home and supportive family, a stable identity, the joys of marriage and fatherhood as a respectable craftsman in Galilee that he could have enjoyed, but Philida clued me in to the shadow side of all of those blessings. Because the birds have nests, but they have to defend them. And the foxes have dens, but they spend a lot of energy keeping them hidden. A home is a good thing, but it comes with obligations. The disciples had homes, but the urgency of Christ's mission to the cross called them to leave their home concerns in other hands. I confess I'm not always sure how to apply this to us today. Home and family are a gift from God, part of God's good creation, one that nourishes life in innumerable ways. But Paul also acknowledges in another of his letters that family and home come with obligations which can dilute a person's availability to serve God without encumbrances. Every minister or missionary I know, well, every working parent for that matter, sometimes struggles with the competing obligations between the meaningful work we have been given to do And the family that we love and want to tend. I would not argue that all Christians must be celibate in order to serve God, but neither do I want to contribute to the idolization of the nuclear family that I see in some Christian circles. I suspect we are really dealing in our context with a question of balance which the Galatians text will help us discern, I think. But before we get there, I just want to tell you, we took the kids this week, a little bit of a reunion celebration, to Charcoal Corral to see the latest installment of the lives of Woody and Buzz Lightyear in Toy Story 4. I'm not going to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. But um, if you have seen any of those other Toy Story movies, you know that Woody, the cowboy toy, uh, the favorite toy in the child's bedroom, the one who rules and, and manages the bedroom, sometimes he struggles with a hero complex, and sometimes he struggles with defending his turf as Andy's favorite toy or Bonnie's favorite toy. I won't go into detail, but in this last movie, uh, Woody is so worried about maintaining his legacy that he endangers his friends. And he strains the relationship with his friends almost to the breaking point. So if you will allow me to mix the metaphors, when Woody's position in the nest is threatened, he begins to act a little bit like Phyllida he starts flailing about in everybody's face. And in the weird world of my mind, this is where it all came together for me at the drive-in theater in Perry. (laughs) In Galatians, Paul was addressing congregations that were being torn apart by competing visions of Christian identity. Did the Gentile converts need to be circumcised like their Jewish brothers were? Paul's answer in this letter was an adamant no. He insisted that circumcision would lead the Galatians to put on again the yoke of slavery when they had already been set free by the work of Christ in his death and resurrection. Instead of being led by the flesh, which can only be governed by the constraints of law, believers in Christ have been set free to be led by the Holy Spirit, One faction among the Galatians were essentially arguing that Jesus' new covenant was insufficient, after all, to produce holiness in God's children. That the law was still the only reliable path to righteousness. Their hand was on the plow, but they were looking back to the old ways, wanting to bind everyone to their inherited obligations. They were, if you will defending the nest of Jewish identity by trying to insist that everyone follow their ways. Paul would not allow this. He had experienced the freedom of following the Spirit out of the bondage of his defensiveness and legalism. And so he exhorted the Galatians to stand firm in their freedom. Despite the impression that some have given about the sacrifices we make in following Christ— It is not heroic endurance or stoic detachment from others that keeps us at the plow. Rather, it is the Holy Spirit and the work that he accomplishes in us. The spirit-grown fruit of love, joy, peace, patience or forbearance, kindness, goodness or generosity— Faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. These are what keep us free and keep us standing firm in our freedom and steadfast in our duty. How many times have you seen someone give up on God because of God's people? Let me explain what I mean. Yes, the body of Christ is answerable for the myriad aggressions committed and covered up in the name of Jesus Christ. But that's not what I'm talking about this morning. Have a falling out with someone at church? There's another one down the road. Don't like the way an institution is going? Get out, or disengage at the very least. You don't agree with our position statement. Maybe you'd be comfortable somewhere else. And so we part ways, and we tear one another down in whatever conversation we have the opportunity to do so, and we defend it all in the pious guise of maintaining my personal integrity. We have all seen these painful situations. Well, at least before we moved here. (laughs) You know, most of us in this room are Westerners, and that means that we have inherited an obsession with personal independence and individual fulfillment, which in its current manifestation is a twisted distortion of true freedom in Christ. And this has handicapped us when it comes to actually living with each other in love. We have neglected to disciple one another for character formation in addition to biblical knowledge and serving the church. The truth is that these days our culture has not given us very thick skin when it comes to conflict and reconciliation. In a sense, it could be argued that we don't really need the fruit of the Holy Spirit to be grown in our lives because most of us aren't actually trying to love anyone else as much as we love ourselves and our family. Patience, gentleness, self-control, these things are only required for the long haul. For those who want to learn how not to look back at the past through rose-colored glasses, For those who want to learn how to cultivate obedience instead of reputation. For those, in fact, who want to be made fit for the kingdom of God. The freedom of following the Spirit, a freedom which is admittedly difficult to embrace, leads disciples not to self-indulgence, but to become more loving, more joyful. Believers led by the Spirit become less defined by their hatred and more defined by their peaceableness. They are more interested in being patient with one another than in striving for position. They are more eager to be kind than they are to defend their territory. They are known for their generosity instead of for their anger. Faithfulness and gentleness characterize their life together, not dissension and factions. The follower of Christ, led by the Holy Spirit, is free to leave behind the obligations of reputation and legacy, is freed from the need to defend the nest, if you will. The follower of Jesus, led by the Spirit and empowered by the fruit he grows within us, learns not to call down the fire of God upon those who have rejected them like James and John wanted to do to the Samaritan village. Instead, we learn to move on, not tending our grievances, but keeping in step with the Spirit who moves wherever he wills. We learn to keep our hand on the plow, not to look back. It is an exhilarating freedom, even if it takes some getting used to. The best news of all this morning is that this freedom is already achieved for us. If we want to live into it, all we have to do is follow the Spirit. We don't have to manufacture gentleness or drum up goodness within us. We have to learn to listen to the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit in the moment with the person right in front of us. How would the spirit of love respond to the person sitting in front of you this morning? Before I wind this down, I'd like to share with you a bit of how this has been playing out in my life recently. Sometimes in very big, dramatic ways, and sometimes in sort of small, quiet ones. Uh, Warning, the following statement is an understatement. You might not know about me that I sometimes have very strong opinions about certain things. (laughs) Um, And I also have a fairly strong sarcastic streak, which the Holy Spirit usually enables me to keep relatively tamed. When I was younger, I prided myself on my sarcastic wit, I thought it was a sign of intelligence and quick-wittedness. But as I matured in my relationships, I began to hear from the people I loved that sarcasm coming from me had wounded them. And that it doesn't always have the effect of dazzling people with my wittiness. So I felt called to pray about it. And I felt really overwhelmed Because sarcasm was my go-to reflex. How do you stop something like that? A very wise mentor said to me when I asked her to pray with me about it, Don't pray that God will change your sarcasm and take it away overnight. Pray that the Lord will prepare you for the next conversation you have. And in that moment... Ask the Lord now that in that moment he will give you a prompting in your spirit and enable you to keep your mouth shut. Well, I thought, I can do that. I can do that. Okay, so I did that, and the Lord was faithful. And not only did he prompt me, but he gave me the ability to keep my mouth shut. So I kept praying, and I set about to learn more about myself and about my sarcastic tendencies. And I began to hear the Spirit's promptings more and more, to either keep my mouth shut or to rephrase something in a more earnest and open manner before I let it out of my mouth. And gradually, year by year, the Holy Spirit has been taming my sarcastic beast. But I know that I am still vulnerable to failure in this area. And I have learned that I am most vulnerable when I am tired or when I am feeling out of my comfort zone, when I'm feeling like I'm not being heard. And so now we come to my trip to Israel a couple weeks ago, which was wonderful in many ways. But I mentioned a few minutes ago that I have strong opinions about a few things. And Israel is one of the things I have strong opinions about because I love it so much. I I went there the first time when I was six years old. It's a precious place to me. And the group that we were going with is an organization whose approach I don't agree with 100%. And so I was a little worried because I knew I'd be tired. Traveling with students is so wonderful, but it's also very tiring. And so I began to pray a couple weeks before the the trip that the Lord would begin to guard my tongue and help me pay attention to the promptings of his spirit. And two weeks, two days before before I left for Israel, I came down with a sinus infection and lost my voice. And for six days of the eight-day trip, I couldn't talk. (laughs) So talk about having to weigh my words. I had to be sure that what I needed to say really needed to be said. Because I could not be sure that my voice would last long enough to say it. And I went into that trip not terribly excited, worried that it would be a disturbing experience for me. And what I got was the chance to see Israel all over again for the first time, because I was seeing it through the eyes of people that I was actually listening to, rather than thinking about what I might say in response to what they were seeing. It was a gift. The Lord helped me about the second day Uh, in a prayer time, to think of this and receive it as a gift rather than a burden. I don't want to say that he inflicted me with laryngitis in order to make me stop talking, but maybe you want to say that. That's okay. (laughs) Sometimes the prompting of the Spirit is big like that and dramatic, and sometimes it's small and quiet in our spirit. But remember I said a few moments ago, the best news of all is that all we have to do is to learn to recognize the voice of the Spirit and follow him in freedom. It is not up to us to make ourselves more loving, more patient, more gentle, etc. It's up to us to learn to recognize the voice of our shepherd through his Holy Spirit. So as we close this morning, um, I'm going to lead us in a moment of Just quiet prayer. I'm not going to pray. I'll just give us a moment of quiet silence. Um, And I'm going to invite you in that moment to pray and ask the Spirit to begin working with you on your fruits. Maybe there's one particular one that you know you need work on. Uh, Maybe there's lots of them and you feel overwhelmed. But let me warn you, if you ask the Spirit for help and then don't take it, It only gets harder the next time. So if you're going to put your hand to this plow, ask the Spirit to help you stay at it. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for seeing more in your creation than we see in ourselves. Give us the courage to follow you and the desire to be led by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.